You may open your Bibles with me this morning to our opening passage in Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We opened our worship a few minutes ago with Galatians chapter 1 verses 6 through 9 where the brother, our beloved brother Paul, warned about how we ought to treat those that would preach any gospel different than what he preached. After that we had read to us Matthew 21, a wonderful parable, a simple enough parable about the kingdom that God gave to the Jews and they rebelled against his prophets and apostles and so he gave it to the Gentiles. And that kingdom ground them to powder, every one that disobeyed Him. And it will grind again when Jesus Christ comes in power and great glory with His mighty angels. The King of Heaven laid out before them the marriage supper of the church of Jesus Christ, and they were welcomed to it by the prophets and apostles. They found the things of this world more interesting than His things. And so that king came and burned up their city. And he sent his servants out in the highways and the hedges to compel others to come in, and that's where they found us. We weren't in that land of Israel. We were far, far away. But God sent his apostles into the world, and it's part of the great mystery of the gospel that they found even us. And bad and good were called into the visible church. But the Lord Jesus Christ is going to take a reckoning of all visible churches one day very soon. And we'll find out whether we have the righteousness of Jesus Christ clothing us or we're in here without a wedding garment. Lord, have mercy. When the Lord confronts you, do you know how many excuses you're going to make? You know what the Bible says? He was speechless. Let us be sober and humble before the Word of God. I am thankful that I have before me the words of God in the English language. Every single one of them. I am so tired of those men that have no final authority, that talk about the original autographs, that talk about Hebrew and Greek manuscripts, but they don't have an authority. They bounce around and they call in question the King James Bible, though they have to admit It is probably the most accurate. It's one of the best. I love it. I read it. But we can't trust it. Oh, we can trust it. We're going to trust it. We have bet. We have bet our lives in this world and the next on our King James Bibles. And so I'm going to read to you a few verses here in Titus chapter 1 to introduce this subject of the Gospel Millennium. We want to learn how the Bible teaches, plainly teaches, The kingdom of God is here, and there's one final day that's coming soon. We don't believe the kingdom of God is in the future, and we don't believe about a whole lot of events that are coming soon. We're looking forward to one consummation day that's coming when the Lord Jesus Christ shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is writing Titus here in the island of Crete and telling him the qualifications of men fit for the office of bishop. And I'm going to take up in verse 9 where he is describing their ability in the Word of God. Holding fast the faithful Word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly 
and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. One of themselves, even a prophet of their own, said, The Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. There are three things I want you to notice from this passage. Oh, let's make it four. Holding fast the faithful word. Ministers are not required by the command of God to hold fast everything they were taught. They're required to hold fast the faithful word that they were taught. That's the first thing we want to notice. The second thing we want to notice that in verse 10 there are many, not a few, not a couple, not one, but there are many unruly, wild, and vain talkers and deceivers coming up with all sorts of new inventions and doctrines and ideas, especially they of the circumcision. What does that mean? Those are the Jews. Jews that are teaching wild speculations from the Bible. And there were many of them in Paul's day. And in verse 11, we are told that they were doing it for filthy lucre's sake. Because they could make money off of things like films called the Left Behind series. And we come down to the 14th verse for the fourth thing I want you to notice. Where Paul warned Titus, Be careful and do not give heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. And we have these Jewish fables still in our day. We still have those of the circumcision running around, whether that circumcision be in the flesh or that circumcision be in their own minds. I did not say regenerate children of God, although some may be. Circumcision in the flesh or in their minds, teaching Jewish fables, For filthy lucre's sake. I have three Bibles in my hand. The first one is from 1890. It's John Darby's translation of the scriptures, including his notes. England, 1890. Jewish fables about multiple comings of Jesus Christ, a seven-year tribulation, an earthly millennium in this world with a capital at Jerusalem and Jesus sitting on a throne there. Jewish fables with the Jews restored to their promised land and the Jews restored as the preeminent people on earth. John Darby. He had a friend named C.I. Schofield who unleashed his Bible in 1909. Now, when a man takes the precious Word of God, the King James Bible, and sticks his words in, above, around, and below the words of the King James Bible, and then sells it as his Bible with his name on it, the Schofield Bible, that should tell you enough about the man right there. Cyrus Ingersoll Schofield, 1909, copyrighted by Oxford, You will not find a Schofield Bible that doesn't come out of Oxford unless somebody has bought 
the rights because they copyrighted all those notes and it's been a money-making machine for them for 97 years. This is the original Schofield Reference Bible. Back in the early part of the 20th century, there were prophecy seminars held around this country where you could go and hear guys like Schofield open up the Word of God and just make it so simple. Here it is. When I claim something that Schofield teaches, you can find it in his Bible or in Darby's Bible. In 1967, Oxford revised the Schofield Bible a little bit and kicked out the new Schofield Reference Bible, claiming it was the King James Version with Schofield's notes. However, it was no longer the King James Version, though they claimed it was so. Take a peek at 1 Samuel 13.1 in this book that claims to be not the new King James Version, but the King James Version, and answer why there's an ellipsis in 1 Samuel 13.1. An ellipsis is three dots, meaning we've lost some words. Cyrus Ingersoll Schofield. Jewish fables from Derby and Schofield, and they were accepted by many, many fundamentalist Christians, including the university in our town and Bible colleges and seminaries in other places. And so today, the preponderance of conservative Christians believe the prophetic scheme invented by Darby and popularized by Schofield. No one prior to 1830 had ever believed or written the ideas that Darby and Schofield promoted after 1830. You cannot find any historical record of the stuff they invented. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. We are dealing with the millennium, the thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we believe that Jesus Christ has been reigning for 2,000 years now. And that the figure, a thousand years, like everything else in Revelation chapter 20, is to be understood under the signs of that chapter. It's amazing to read their commentaries on Revelation 20. The key is a symbol of verse 1. I hope you know the chapter. We read it last Sunday. The key is a symbol and not to be understood literally. The chain's a symbol and not to be understood literally. The bottomless pit's a symbol and not to be understood literally. But the thousand years, you bet, that's literal. Let me just cheat and remind you of a few things in the Bible, what it says about a thousand. God promises to reward those that love Him to a thousand generations. Well, what happens to the poor children of the one thousandth and first generation? Are they cast off by the God of heaven? The Bible says the Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Who owns them on the 1,002nd hill? The word 1,000, when it's used by prophets like that in poetic language, like the book of Revelation is full of, is simply a description of all the years between the first and second coming of Jesus Christ. Is when Jesus would reign with His saints. But we're going to take that chapter apart, but we need to get there in a logical way, and we need to undo some of the Jewish fables. Now, for your learning... For your learning, there are three millennial positions. We went over it last Sunday, but repetition is the key to learning. The premillennial system means pre, which is before, 
Jesus Christ has to come the second time before the millennial kingdom. There will be a 1,000 year literal reign of Jesus Christ on earth in Palestine from Jerusalem after Jesus comes the second time. Actually, after He comes the third time, but hold on a second until I explain that one again. That's hard to keep track of. I'm so thankful that many of our children don't have to unlearn a thing about this. But some of you older ones have to unlearn a lot. That's premillennialism. The whole world is moving toward the second coming of Jesus Christ, but then the good stuff happens. For 2,000 years, it's been God having a parenthesis called the church in which He's dealing with us. The Old Testament didn't have a thing to say about us. We were a disappointment to God because He had tried to set up an earthly kingdom with the Jews, but they refused it, so He then came up with the idea of the church. And I'm not exaggerating. Premillennialism. There's an earthly kingdom of 1,000 years to come in the future after Jesus returns the second time. Jesus will come before that starts. So it's called premillennialism. Postmillennialism means Jesus Christ will come the second time post-millennium or after the millennium. These people believe the earth is getting better every year. If we'll all homeschool our kids, get involved in politics, write letters to politicians, and, and go to Presbyterian churches, we can reconstruct this nation into a Christian nation, we'll take the world for God and create our own millennium of a thousand years, of a literal reign on earth of righteousness, and then Jesus can come the second time. That's post-millennialism. Jesus comes post or after the millennium. We're going to bring the millennium in by our hard work down here to reconstruct this earth and turn it into a righteous place. Can't you tell that it's getting better every year? And then there's the amillennialists. Ah means none, which isn't fair. That's what the pre's and the posts want to call us. That we don't believe in the millennium. We believe in the millennium. We believe it's a spiritual reign. And the word thousand years in the one place it occurs in the Bible in Revelation chapter 20 is a symbol or a sign just meaning a whole lot of years between the two comings of Jesus Christ. His first coming in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and His second coming in glory with His mighty angels. And in between, the saints rule with Him on earth in the churches of Jesus Christ, in heaven, around His throne. We'll have a lot more to say. Those are the three views. The most popular view today is the premillennial view. It's the one that comes up with novels and movies called Left Behind. Because, see, Jesus, the next thing that's supposed to happen is Jesus is going to come into the atmosphere. And all the believers are going to be whisked out of the world. There's going to be lawnmowers sitting in the front yards of homes just running until the gas tank empties. Because the person that was pushing it was a believer and he just went straight up into heaven. And the lawnmower is going to sit there unless the unbelieving spouse comes out and turns it off until the gas is all burned up. There's going to be steaks ruined on grills because the man grilling them is going to go to heaven. In what they call the rapture. Mark would like to go while he's grilling. After Jesus leaves the earth, the Holy Spirit is withdrawn, which is somehow a restraining influence in the earth. 
according to their ideas of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, of course, there wasn't anybody in the history of the world that ever believed that before 1830. But they believe that with the saints leaving the world and leaving the wicked here, the Holy Spirit's going to be yanked as well. So things are going to get ugly real fast. The Antichrist is going to come on the scenes. He's going to go to Israel. He's going to build a temple in covenant with the Jews. They're going to think he's just a wonderful Savior and deliverer of their national people. And for three and a half years, it's going to look good. He's going to get a temple built. And then he's going to take the temple for himself. He's going to go inside and sit at that temple. He's going to be able to revive images so that they move. And his idols are going to move. And people are going to worship the images because they're going to do all this stuff. And then he's going to bring war against the Jews. This is all in seven years. At the end of those seven years, Jesus Christ is coming back for the third time. He's coming back to have the battle of Armageddon. The Antichrist is going to have raised a horse cavalry of 200 million. The Euphrates River is going to dry up so that they can march their horses across the river and not have to use a bridge. This is all in the book of Revelation. It's plain. It's very plain. These horses are breathing smoke, fire, and brimstone out of their nostrils. The men on their back are accompanied by locusts. And these locusts have the hair of women. And in their tails they have the sting of a scorpion. And they look like horses. So it's this massive army that's coming to march on Jerusalem. And Jesus is going to come back for the third time and destroy that army. And it's going to take seven years to burn up all the wood tanks that are going to be there in that day. If you've ever read the novels written by Charles, written by Hal Lindsey, written by Salem Kurban, written by Tim LaHaye, written by others, written by uh, Jack Van Empey, you can read about the fact that tanks are soon to be made out of wood. Because, see, it's been a problem. How are they going to burn all these pieces of military equipment when we're using so much steel? They don't have a problem with that. They just push ahead. Push ahead. We're going to make tanks out of wood soon. That's at the end of the seven years. Jesus comes back and He sets up the Millennial Kingdom. The Jews are put back in position as the most important people on earth. He reigns out of Jerusalem. And the earth is a wonderful place for a thousand years. Satan is bound. The wicked and the righteous. The righteous have come back from heaven. We've populated the earth. You know, there's a righteous man, then a wicked man, then a righteous man living down the street. And they're all getting along just peachy because the Lord's reigning with the rod of iron out of Jerusalem. And they all love each other and get along just fine. And it's a, it's a golden age of prosperity. And Jesus is worshipped in Jerusalem where He's always wanted to be worshipped. And then He comes the fourth time when He lets Satan loose at the end of the thousand years. Satan gets all these wicked people living in your neighborhood all upset And they compass the camp of the saints about. They collapse on Jerusalem. And there's going to be a final confrontation. And Jesus destroys the devil. Jesus destroys the devil and casts him into hell. Along with all the wicked, we finally have the final day of judgment. One thousand and seven years after the second coming of Christ. The third coming was seven years later. And the fourth coming was a thousand years after that. And they've come up with this big scheme. And that's what, out of the 400 Baptist churches in our county, 95% of them would say is true. And that stuff is not taught in the Bible. And today's little lesson for you is to take that apart. 
The number one reason that Jesus Christ has to come back and give physical Jews physical land with a physical capital at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea is because in their books, in their ideas, God never fulfilled His promise to give Israel all the land. You know, when God told Abraham, Abraham, go out and look east, look west, look north, look south. All this land I'm going to give you and your seed forever. Hope they grab that word forever and get so excited. It says forever. We take everything literally. Forever. Forever means forever. That means Abraham and his descendants, his physical descendants, are going to have it forever. They forget that Abraham didn't think that way at all. I wish they would just read Abraham. Abraham never owned any of that land except a little chunk that he bought in order to bury his wife Sarah. He didn't own any of that land and he didn't want to own any of it. He knew that he was a pilgrim and a stranger here because he was looking for a heavenly country. He wasn't looking for an earthly country. The second, that's the only forever part of the promise. The land, the physical land was only offered to Abraham's descendants on a conditional covenant. You obey, you can stay in the land. You disobey, I'll rip you out of that place and scatter you in the nations. You go read Deuteronomy 28. It's no unconditional covenant with Abraham for physical land. It was an unconditional covenant with Abraham through Jesus Christ for spiritual land. That's why that spiritual land is called Abraham's bosom. Now let's start and have some fun with the Word of God. And Lord, we love Your Word. We trust Your Word. And I would recommend, unless you are highly disciplined, that you stay away from reference Bibles. Because when you get... I don't mind if you buy books. Buy all the commentaries you want. I'll help you buy them. I am not trying to limit you to what I teach you. But when you have the writing of men on the same page as the words of God, you are subjecting yourself to an enormous temptation to start to think the two of them are equivalent. And they are not. That you have allowed a Bible in your hands that has a liar writing on every page. Let God be true, but every man a liar. And you should let that be the same about me. Let God be true, but every man a liar. I need to prove what I'm about to show you. And let's take a look at it. They say there has to be an earthly kingdom on earth with a capital in Jerusalem because God made promises of land to Abraham and Moses and He hasn't kept them yet. They say it that simple. God hasn't kept them yet, so we've got to have an earthly kingdom in Israel. Do you know how important this is? How many of you have seen John Hagee? That is the greatest Jew lover in the United States of America. Right now, he's gathering people that want to go to Israel, that want to go to Washington, D.C. They are going to have the largest march in favor of Israel coming up in the month of June. I believe it's 18 and 19 of the month of June. The largest demonstration in the history of this country of Christians on behalf of the Christ-hating nation at the east end of the Mediterranean Sea. He has had the Prime Minister of Israel in his pulpit. Why in the world would you have any political figure in your pulpit? And of all the political figures in the world, the last one you would want is one from that nation. Do you know what the Lord Jesus Christ thinks about their synagogues and worship and the people that go in them? Revelation 2.9 and 3.9. They are the synagogue of Satan. 
The same words Jesus used when He was on earth and looking them in the face. He wasn't afraid to say it when He was here. He said, Ye are of your father the devil. When they laid claim to Abraham, He said, You are not even kin to Abraham. You are of your father the devil. John 8, 44. Yes, He has His chosen from that nation. And Paul was one of them. And the apostles were others of them. Let's come over in our Bibles to Joshua. Joshua chapter 11. Now with that long introduction, and see, I've got to make that long of an introduction. So that some of you that have heard it before can be reminded of just how crazy their Jewish fables were. And some of our children that haven't heard it before can hear it so that when they do hear it on the outside, they'll remember, that's right, that's wrong. That's right. I know what a premillennialist is. I want The first thing I want to tell you is premillennialists believe that God still owes physical Jews, physical land in Israel. Now, I don't have time to read all 40 references to you. So I'm just going to read two or three. Yes, there's 40 that say they got all the land. Let's start with Joshua chapter 11 and verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land. Now, for those that love the Word of God, I shouldn't have to read anymore. We should be done. So Joshua took the whole land. Why are they, uh, have you, how many of you have seen the ones on television that want you to send in $500 so that they can fly some Jew from Russia so that they can retire in Israel? Have you, have you seen that one? Oh, wouldn't that give you a warm feeling to know that you're bringing back one of God's favorite people from Russia so that they can die in some pitiful little hospital in Israel? Would that give you a warm, fuzzy feeling? You should hear them go on and on about it. Who'd want to live there? Give them a $700 ticket and bring them to America. You know, let them have something good. You know what? Who knows? The first restaurant you go to might be the time you get blown up in Israel. You might get food poisoning here, but you're not going to get blown up. Who would want to go to Israel? The Arabs own that land and have all the right to it. The Arabs had that property for 1,500 years. The Arabs ought to push the Israelites right into the Mediterranean Sea and drown them all. That land isn't theirs. You say, well, it was once theirs. Yes, it was once theirs, and God rooted them out for their wickedness. Right. Joshua chapter 11 and verse 23, So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord said unto Moses. According to all that the Lord said unto Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance unto Israel, according to the divisions by their tribes in the land, rested from war. Joshua chapter 21. Joshua chapter 21. Verses 43 through 45. Listen to this. The Word of God just smash Schofield's Bible and Schofield's ideas to powder. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 23, 28, and 29, My Word is a hammer and a fire. And it breaks in pieces the rocks. What is the chaff compared to the wheat, saith my Lord? Let men like Schofield tell their dreams, but let the man who's got the Word of God preach my Word. What is the chaff compared to the wheat, saith the Lord? So let's take the hammer of God's Word and smash Schofield's idea, the fundamental premise 
upon which the millennial kingdom is built is that God still owes physical Jews physical land. Jeremiah 21.43 And the Lord gave unto Israel all the land which He sware to give unto their fathers. And they possessed it and dwelt therein. And the Lord gave them rest round about according to all that He sware unto their fathers. And there stood not a man of all their enemies before them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. There failed not aught of any good thing which the Lord had spoken unto the house of Israel. All came to pass. If I had written an email to heaven and asked the Lord to word a few verses in the Bible to end the land idea of C.I. Schofield, I couldn't have worded it any better myself. Could you have? Look at the wording. All that he swore to their fathers. Every single thing that he promised to their fathers, not a single good thing failed to come to pass. It all came to pass. And we've only started. Look at Nehemiah. Never let yourselves or your children be moved away from this fact that we have just read from the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 9. This is how we get established in the Word of God so that when we hear some false idea, we are not moved by it and you know there's an answer in the Bible. And you need to remember some of these answers. You children that want to stand, and especially my young men, you remember these things. You're filling your minds with a whole bunch of stuff in school that as soon as the tests are over, you're supposed to forget because you're going to do it anyway. But when the sermon is over, you're not supposed to forget. You're supposed to keep it for the rest of your life. So it's a very different learning process when you come to church than it is when you go to school. When you go to school, the teacher knows that if you can give a passing grade, get a passing grade on a test, then enough is lodged there that you'll be able to make your way through the next course. But most of it you're going to forget. Try my Spanish after the service. A few of you have watched me with someone that can speak, that people that can speak Spanish before, and how ridiculous it is as I embarrass myself in front of them as they try to figure out what I'm saying. These are words you want to remember. Nehemiah chapter 9 verse 7. Thou art the Lord the God, who didst choose Abram, and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees, and gavest him the name of Abraham, and foundest his heart faithful before thee, and made us the covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous. Amen. Brother, do you love the word of God? It is so plain. They say he has not, God has not fulfilled his covenant with Abraham. This passage tells us about God changing His name from Abram to Abraham. It tells us about the covenant, and it uses the word covenant about the land. It lists the nations that were living there, and it says that God brought it to pass because He is righteous. He doesn't make a promise and doesn't keep it. And when this man says that God has not fulfilled His promise to give them the land, He is calling my God unrighteous. 
He's making my God unrighteous. And God is righteous. He kept His promise to Abraham. That is three of somewhere between 30 and 40 references. But let's go to Hebrews 11 and remind ourselves that Abraham never looked at that chunk of sand at the eastern end of the Mediterranean as anything he wanted. Oh, if Abraham would have been given a choice, he'd have taken Iowa. Why in the world would you want Israel? They have to buy everything they eat and drive in their military from us. I can remember I was 10 years old in 1967. I was a 10-year-old boy. I loved war stories. I read everything that the Dexter Public Library had about World War II. I could have told you, oh, I learned a lot of stuff I didn't need. But I was 10 years old, and there was a six-day war. Egypt and Syria and Jordan thought they would try out Israel. And you know, I was raised in a Schofield Bible, and there's, that's no disrespect to anyone in here. I was raised in the Schofield Bible, and so there was a 10-day war in 1967. A a six-day war. I was 10 years old. Forgive me for getting those facts mixed up. It was a six-day war, and I was 10 years old, and Israel just whipped up on Egypt and Syria and Jordan. It was so exciting to read Life magazine in those days. It was a Life magazine back in the old days. was real big, and you'd turn the pages, and all these burned-out tanks that Egypt had from World War I. Poor Egypt. You know... You know why they're poor? Because God told them they were going to be poor in the book of Daniel. And they're going to be poor forever. And so they had bought World War I surplus. Not two. They couldn't afford it. So they bought World War I surplus. And they had these tanks lumbering along at 20 or 30 miles an hour. And here comes Israel. And guess who they got their tanks from? It wasn't even World War II surplus. It was cutting-edge American technology. And here they go screaming by at 55 miles an hour and lock on radar and blow up these little pickup trucks that Egypt had. And do you know what all the Christians in America said? Praise the Lord. The Lord has intervened on the side of Israel and helped them win a battle in six days. It wasn't the Lord. It was Uncle Sam. Go look at our military expenditures toward Israel over the past 40 years. You say, well, the Lord was had His hand in the matter, didn't He? Yes. He wanted to see how many Schofieldites would jump up and say, praise the Lord. He was trying them. He was tempting them. Do you think Jack Van Impey got any mileage out of that? Rexella was drooling. If you haven't watched Jack and Rexella recently, you need to. She's awesome. Why am I so unkind? I wish the woman was here and could sit down with the Bible and put Jack in another room and let him scream to the padded walls. I wish she could be here. I heard Jack Van Impey when I was about 15 years old in Pioneer High School in Ann Arbor, Michigan, packed out. He could quote the New Testament frontwards, backwards, and inside and out. His wife, he could play the piano and his wife could sing. They were a wonderful couple. Now, that's a long time ago when I was 15 years old. You're probably surprised they were even alive back then. That was 34 years ago. That man has made a complete full circle. He was saved out of Catholicism, and now he's back, and he's the Pope's biggest friend among fundamentalist Christians in America. He's made a complete circle because he started down the road of Jewish fables, and he ended up with the Pope 
as being the future leader of a kingdom on earth. Incredible. He's made a full circle. That's why I mentioned him. We're in Hebrews 11, and we're in Hebrews 11 for a purpose. It's to remind you that Abraham was not looking for physical land. He was not looking for a country here, and he wasn't looking for a city called Jerusalem on this planet. Verse 8, Hebrews 11.8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. Now, according to that eighth verse, Abraham is going to get some kind of an inheritance in a land. Did God fulfill the covenant with Abraham for the land? Nehemiah said he did fulfill the covenant for the land. All came to pass because God is righteous. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise. This was the land that God promised to Abraham. As in a strange country. It wasn't his home. He didn't like it. He just had to be there for a while while he was waiting for his real country. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, which means tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Why would you want anything in Israel on sand? When you could have a home in heaven that has a real foundation. And Abraham knew that. He was looking by faith way past this world. But you know, these Jewish fables don't want to look past this world because their kingdom is wrapped up in this world. They want an earthly kingdom with an earthly king in their earthly capital of Jerusalem with an earthly temple. They hated the idea of a spiritual Messiah and a spiritual deliverance and spiritual salvation. Which we love. And you better love. They wanted Jesus Christ to arrive the first time on a white horse and deliver them from the Roman Empire and establish a kingdom like David had had. Jesus arrived in a manger instead and died on a cross and rose from the dead. And now He has His white horse and He's our captain. Praise the Lord for that. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. The faith, the faith that called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees was not, oh great, I'm going to have a huge spread in Palestine or Canaan. I'm going to have a huge spread. No, he just went there because that's where he was a stranger and a pilgrim and where his descendants would live for a little while. But he went there with faith looking toward heaven. Jesus would say of him in John chapter 8, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He rejoiced to see my day. Because Abraham was just looking ahead. The Lord Jesus Christ is going to come out of me and he's going to get me heaven. That's the land and city he wanted. Isn't that exciting? We want to be spiritually minded. Do you know what they say when we do things like I'm doing right now? We are spiritualizing the Bible. You bet I'm spiritualizing the Bible. I'm told to spiritualize it. They call it replacement theology. You're replacing literal promises to Abraham with spiritual promises to Abraham. You bet I am. Because the Bible tells me to do that. We can skip Sarah. Let's go to verse 13. These all died in faith. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. 
and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. But C.I. Schofield and these other Jew lovers today are not strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They love the earth and they want their kingdom on earth. For they that say such things, verse 14 of Hebrews 11, declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. If Cain wasn't good enough, because Ur of the Chaldees was a whole lot better than Canaan, they could have gone back, but they didn't want to do that either. But now they desire a better country. They didn't like the Chaldean country. They didn't like the Canaanite country because they were looking for a better country by faith. They desire a better country that is in heavenly, wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He hath prepared for them a city. Amen and amen. I know I'm taking a long time on this one point, but don't you ever be moved from it. Every time you hear someone talking about the land in Israel, Abraham didn't want it. And everything God ever said to Abraham that involved physical land, God fulfilled those promises, and they are long gone. Abraham was looking for heaven. And the the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is a city that is in heaven. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. It's called Abraham's bosom. Because Abraham is there. It's called paradise. And it's where Abraham... I want paradise, not Palestine. You say, well... Palestine once was paradise. No, it wasn't. Iraq was once paradise. The Garden of Eden was in Iraq, not in Israel. You say, how do you know that? Go look at the rivers that are mentioned in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then go get yourself a globe and find them. Let's come over to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. All you children, if if you ever hear anywhere that God still owes Abraham land, God already gave the land to Abraham and his descendants, and they lost it because they were disobedient. But Abraham really didn't care about that land. Abraham wanted to go to heaven. And Hebrews 11 tells us all about Abraham wanting to go to heaven. He didn't care about that land. Let's go to number two. If you were to see my outline, it says, Can we reject premillennialism as a system of lies? I am going to do this outline in the form of a catechism. It is going to take you from the most elementary questions about the millennium as far as you want to read. But this question is, can we reject premillennialism as a system of lies? And the answer is absolutely. They show a profane disregard for Scripture with even the simplest of Bible prophecies. The land was the first one. Let's go to this one. These are the 70 weeks of Daniel. One of the most important prophecies of the Old Testament. Daniel 9, verse 24. I'm going to read till the end of the chapter. There's only four verses. They're big. But there's only four. 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression 
and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. And after threescore and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with the flood. And under the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Amen and amen. Amen. This is the precious word of God, and it's plain enough. Daniel has been confessing the sins of his people because he found in the book of Jeremiah that God was only going to leave Israel in Babylon for 70 years. And so he gets excited that it's the 70 years are about to expire. And so he goes to praying very fervently here in Daniel chapter 9, confessing all the sins of his people. God sends an angel to him while he's praying to give him an answer of what things are going to happen to his people. And so the angel comes to give him a vision that can be understood. Look at verse 23. This is the angel speaking. Let me start at verse 22. He informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. At the beginning of thy supplications, the commandment came forth, and I am come to show thee, for thou art greatly beloved. Therefore, understand the matter and consider the vision. The angel was about to reveal the future of Daniel's people to Daniel, and he was going to do it in such a plain way that Daniel would be able to see it. He was going to show it to him, and he would have skill and understanding based on the following words. So this prophecy is not hard to figure out. It's easy to figure out. Seventy weeks are determined are the first four words. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. The holy people are the Israelites, Judah and Benjamin. The holy city is the earthly city of Jerusalem. Seventy weeks are determined. These are weeks of years. Seventy weeks. A week has seven in it. Seventy times seven is 490. Now, I have preached this before in detail. It is on the Internet in very great detail. And you are welcome to go there and fill in any holes in your understanding. 490 years are going to wrap up God's dealings with the nation of Israel and the use of the, and the Messiah. We have a list of things in verse 24 that are going to happen in that period of time. Upon the holy city, an end of transgression, making reconciliation for iniquity. When was reconciliation made for iniquity? On the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah of God, sent to Israel. Well, when was the 70 weeks going to start? 
It says in verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, so we know exactly when it started. It started when the 70 years ended. When Cyrus proclaimed, I want Jerusalem and the temple rebuilt. Cyrus the Persian. Ezra chapter 1, last chapter of Second Chronicles, Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45 tell us about Cyrus the Persian. He's the one that snuck into the impregnable city of Babylon by having his engineers dam up the Euphrates River and marched his army in the riverbed, which that river flowed through the city of Babylon as a supply of water. He marched his army in and took it in one night, the city that thought that it would stand forever because God was against that city of Babylon. And he had raised up Cyrus as his servant to take care of his people and who was stirred up in his heart to command Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And God's telling Daniel all this in advance. That there's going to be a commandment that's going to send your people back to Jerusalem. But when it starts, the 490 years start. In 456 B.C., Cyrus marched into the city of Babylon. In 30 A.D., the Lord Jesus Christ died. That is 486 years. That is 69 and a half years. Now let's follow. There's a a seven-year period mentioned. That's how long it was going to take them to rebuild the city and the temple. 49 years. Then there was going to be a 62-year period that would get you to Messiah. Look at how it's worded. Verse 25. In the middle, where I left off when I was previously reading, it says, Unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. When you've got seven and three score and two... By the way, what's the score? Twenty. What's three score and two? Sixty-two. What's sixty-two plus seven? Sixty-nine. So it's going to take sixty-nine weeks unto Messiah the Prince. We're only going to get to Messiah the Prince in sixty-nine weeks. The street's going to be built again, the wall even in troublous times, and all those troubles are detailed for us in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah as the neighboring nations try to keep the recovered recovered Jews from rebuilding their city of Jerusalem. Verse 26, and after three score and two weeks. Now, the, the, prop, the angel has said there's seven weeks and then there's 62 weeks that'll get us to Messiah. Are you with me? There's seven weeks to get the city rebuilt. That's 49 years. Then there's 62 weeks. That's a whole bunch more years to get us to Messiah the Prince. Now this verse says, after three score and two weeks. That's the, th- the, score, the, the 62 weeks here that are in a chunk that get us to the Messiah after that. What week are you in after the 62nd week, which you add the, pr- the first seven to as well? You're in the 70th week. There is no other place you can be. Are you with me? You're in the 70th week. And after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. In the 70th week, Messiah was cut off, but not for himself. Do you have trouble figuring that out? What does it mean to be cut off? Killed, but not for himself. He died a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. That's the first half of verse 26. The second half is talking about something else. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Was there a people that was a, was there a man that was a prince? And did he come with a people 
and destroy the city and the sanctuary? Yes, he did. What was his name? Titus. Was he the emperor of Rome or was he the prince of Rome? He was the prince because his father Vespasian was the emperor of Rome. The prince came and he destroyed the city and the sanctuary. And Jesus forecast it upon his generation throughout the Gospels. And the end thereof shall be with the flood. But when it finally caved in, the Romans just overran the city with a flood. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now back, verse 27, we go back to a singular male pronoun. And he. There is only one singular male pronoun in the previous verse that is the subject of any activity in that previous verse. And it's Messiah the Prince. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. The Lord Jesus Christ confirmed the covenant of God with many for one week. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. Jesus laid down his life and caused sacrifices and oblations for sins to no longer be offered in Jerusalem because he paid the price that put away all the blood of bulls and goats forever and ever. We studied that last Sunday, second service, Hebrews 9 and 10. Remember, when Jesus died, the veil was ripped from top to bottom in the temple, opening up the way to God because there was no longer any need for animal sacrifices. The way to God was opened up by the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of the week. Jesus confirmed the covenant by being the messenger of the covenant from God to His people. When He had the Lord's Supper... He said, this cup is the New Testament or New Covenant in my blood. He confirmed the covenant with many for one week. And for the overspreading of abominations, He shall make it desolate, the city of Jerusalem and the temple and the nation, even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. When He walked out of the temple for the last time, He said, behold... Your house is left unto you desolate. This is the simplest prophecy in the Bible. Or it's on one hand of the simplest prophecies in the Bible. Because we live on this side of the Lord Jesus Christ and we can look back with the spectacles of the New Testament and know exactly what's being said here. It had to have occurred in 490 years and Daniel gave us the starting point as 456 B.C. So it had to end around the turn of the eras. The 70 weeks of Daniel. Glorious prophecy. Now, what do they do with these, with these 70 weeks? There was nothing determined. God made a mistake. He got the 70 weeks cranking. He got to the 69th week. And all of a sudden, it stopped. And there was an indefinite period of time that is now greater than 2,000 years and we're still waiting for the 70th week. Whenever anybody talks to you about the seven-year tribulation, there is no seven-year tribulation anywhere in the Bible. They pick the seven years as the 70th week of Daniel that is still to come. What kind of a God is it who says 70 weeks are determined, but He didn't mean 70 weeks He meant 69 weeks plus 2,000 plus years plus another week. How in the world could Daniel have had any understanding of that at all? 
How could anybody have ever read Daniel chapter 9 and been looking for the Messiah after 483 years? Because 483 years would bring you to the Messiah. Why did John say, the time is fulfilled? Why did Jesus say, the time is fulfilled? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What time? What time? The 70 weeks right here. 69 weeks had brought them to Messiah the Prince. 483 years, Jesus Christ was baptized and presented to the nation of Israel as the Messiah. And in the midst of the week, three and a half years later, He was cut off. You say, well, how did He confirm the covenant with many for another another three and a half years after He went to heaven? Through His apostles. Those apostles went everywhere with the same message Jesus Christ had preached. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it, remembrance of me. Messiah had come. This, this is so simple. Their interpretation cannot possibly, by any, by any stretch, be the true interpretation or it makes God a liar. Right. He said 70 weeks are determined. They have to run consecutively or the 70 weeks means nothing. There is no reason to have a gap in there. Messiah the Prince wouldn't even be here yet because Messiah the Prince is cut off in the 70th week because it says after 62 weeks. 7, 62, after 69, there's only one place left for the Messiah to be in the 70th week. The whole premillennial system hangs upon the fact that there is a seven-year tribulation coming because the 70th week has never been fulfilled. That at 69, God just cut, lifted the prophecy. It was no longer valid. And time's been counting 2,000 years. And we still don't have the 70th week. Brethren, most of our city and many of us in the past have been lied to. And it ought to make you angry. It makes me angry. It's why I'm going over this detail again. I have to have you established that you will never wonder about that 70th week. It was fulfilled 1960 some years ago. By Messiah being cut off for our sins, not for Himself, making reconciliation for iniquity in the midst of the week and causing the oblation and sacrifices to cease because He opened up the way to God so there was no more need for any sacrifice. He had shed His blood once for all and taken that blood into heaven and it was accepted by God our Father. This is the simple truth of God's Word. May we humble ourselves before it as His little children, His babes, and believe it and not be led astray by Jewish fables, no matter how popular they might be. Here's what they do with the passage. The second word of the 27th verse, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, is the Antichrist. He'll confirm the covenant with many for one week. He's going to, remember? He's going to come and make a covenant with the Jews for a week, seven years. And in the midst of the week, he's going to stop the animal sacrifices from being offered in Jerusalem where all the Jews are offering animal sacrifices again and the Antichrist is going to stop the sacrifices. And then for the overspreading of abominations because the Antichrist is there in a temple that Jesus loves so much Jesus is going to come flying back from heaven with vengeance because there's an Antichrist 
in an animal blood-soaked temple in Jerusalem, and he's jealous for his animal blood, and he's going to come back and wreak vengeance on the Antichrist. Can you believe it? And we used to believe that stuff. And most of this city believes it. That city's been long gone for 2,000 years. That little thing over there, it's about the size of Fountain Inn. Go check out Jerusalem sometime. It's nothing in the scheme of the world. And it's inhabited and trodden down by Gentiles, and it's been trodden down by Gentiles for 2,000 years. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was going to make it desolate for the abominations of crucifying the Lord of glory. We read it over and over today, and we could read it over and over again for a long time to come. Jesus said to the Pharisees that heard His parable in Matthew 21, What is that Lord going to do to those husbandmen? Those Pharisees answered correctly and said, He will miserably destroy them and give that vineyard out to other husbandmen that will give Him the fruits in their due season. Jesus said, You bet that's what's going to happen. The kingdom of God is going to be taken from you and given to a Gentile nation that's going to bring forth the fruits thereof. The next chapter, what's the king going to do to those people that didn't want his marriage supper? He's going to burn up their city and kill those wicked men, which he did. Daniel chapter 9 is the 70 weeks prophecy. It is fulfilled by 2,000 years. It's all about our Messiah, and it has a little bit in it about the people of the prince, and that is the Roman soldiers under Titus who came and destroyed the city and the sanctuary in 70 A.D. The whole thing is completely fulfilled and has been for 2,000 years. Everyone knew that until 1830 when these guys came up with their idea of taking the 70th week and running it way out into the future. That's where they get their seven-year tribulation. Not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. But they take this 70th week and attach it to other words that don't belong to it. Turn over a few pages to the book of Haggai. We are taking apart the major premises, that is the major pillars, the major assumptions of the premillennial system. There's the second one we took apart that the 70th week is still yet to be fulfilled. Haggai chapter 2. Now, I mentioned this last Sunday, so we can do it in just a few minutes and we'll quit. Haggai chapter 2. Chapter 1 is God's prophet Haggai coming to the Jews that had been recovered from Babylon. And they are rebuilding the city, and they have set up their houses, and they've got all comfortable homes, But the prophet comes and says, why haven't you built the Lord's house? Verse 4 of chapter 1. Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste? You people have gone and built your houses, but you haven't built the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem yet. This is the small band of recovered Jews that are there in Jerusalem rebuilding after the decree of Cyrus to go back to their capital city and rebuild it. Chapter 1 was an exhortation for them to do it. Chapter 2 is they're starting it. They're starting the project, and as they get ready to lay the foundation, you can imagine them having it strung out on the ground. They have a string. You know, before you build a house, you lay out exactly where the foundation's going to go, and they've laid out the foundation for this house, and there's some old men there who had seen Solomon's temple. The book, of, the book of Ezra tells us about this event. The old men started crying. The young people started shouting because they were going to build a temple to God. 
the old people started crying because they knew it was so small in comparison to what Solomon had built. And they knew that these three chests over here with gold and silver were only going to cover the front door. And Solomon was overlaid with gold in and out. And so here comes the Lord seeing His people crying and rejoicing about this little foundation for the second temple. And He wants to encourage them. And here's how He encourages them. And it's one of my favorite prophecies in the Bible because of the glory it gives Jesus Christ. I'll take up in verse 6. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once, it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. You can understand. These words are so simple. There's two houses under consideration. Solomon's house, which in this passage is called the former house. The latter house is Zerubbabel's house. Ezra's house. Haggai's house. Zechariah's house. The one they're about to build. There's two temples under consideration. Solomon's that Nebuchadnezzar leveled to the ground. And now Zerubbabel's that's about to be built. And the Lord's encouraging them. He tells them, I own all the silver and all the gold anyway. Don't worry that your three chests over there will barely get the front doors covered. I own all the silver and the gold. Don't be discouraged because I'm going to give the house that you're starting to build greater glory than Solomon's house ever had. And do you know what gave it greater glory? Our king arrived there. No king ever graced Solomon's temple like the Lord Jesus Christ graced the temple that was in Jerusalem that Zerubbabel laid the foundation for. That is the fulfillment of Haggai. The desire of all nations shall come to that house. Not some future house. Not the church of Jesus Christ. He was going to come to that building that these Jews felt so bad about before the Lord because it was so small. But Haggai gives them the word of the Lord. Don't be discouraged. Be strong, O Zerubbabel, verse 4. Be strong, O Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all ye people. I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. I am with you. I love what you're doing. It's big enough for me. I own all the silver and the gold anyway. And I'm going to give this house that you're building greater glory than Solomon's ever had. And then he says this. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. What place? What place? They're all standing around strings on the ground. What place? That temple that Zerubbabel laid the foundation of. The Lord Jesus Christ gave peace when, rip, the veil was torn from top to bottom in that place, in that house, when the desire of all nations came and laid down His life on the cross of Calvary for our sins. Praise be to God. Hebrews chapter 12, the Apostle Paul quotes this passage and said that shaking of the heavens and the earth had already taken place and the Old Testament had floated off because it had been shaken because it was only temporary so that things which are going to remain forever would stay. And he said, we have a kingdom which cannot be moved in God's shaking. It survived the shaking because it's the last way God's going to be worshipped 
and that was Hebrews 12, 28 and 29. What do they say about this? There is yet to come a temple to be built in Jerusalem that Jesus Christ is going to come to. Forget it. They're 2,000, 3,000 years too late. Jesus already came and He already brought peace in the house that Zerubbabel built because the God of heaven said, in this place, this house, this latter house shall be greater than the former. There are only two houses under consideration. Solomon's temple, Zerubbabel's temple. And it was Zerubbabel's temple that was graced by the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ for 33 and a half years from when he was held as a baby in the hands and arms of Simeon until he walked out of that thing and said, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Three years earlier he had said, Why have you made my father's house a den of thieves? But three and a half years later, when they had rejected his ministry, when he had come to them to receive the fruits of his vineyard, he said, Your house is left unto you desolate because it was no longer his house. The glory of God had been withdrawn. And he leveled the place and took it apart stone by stone by the prince that came with the Roman people. Praise the Lord for the simplicity of the Bible. This is the testimony of Haggai. The shaking of the heaven and the earth is figurative language for a religious upheaval of changing the old covenant into the new covenant. And that's what Paul tells us was meant by it in Hebrews 12, 28, 29, 26, and 27. If you want to get the whole passage, he said there was only one more shaking to coming. That's why the Lord said yet once more, I've only got one more religious change to make. And then it will be the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's what we've got. Because Paul said, wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. And that was 1,946 years ago when Paul said the final kingdom was already there. And brethren, the desire of all nations is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the desire of our hearts. We're, we're far removed from the commonwealth of Israel, brethren. We are strangers to the covenants of promise. But the Lord Jesus Christ brought us in by His blood and made of twain one new man destroying the enmity that stood between Jews and Gentiles and uniting us before God as the family of God through the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who made peace in that little place when He tore the veil open and opened the way to God. Do not be moved away from these things. These are the simple things of the Word of God. They have moved away from them. The shaking hasn't happened. Jesus is still going to come back to a temple, and have animal sacrifices restored again. I want to tell you something. Jesus can't come to the latter house. There's only two houses. Solomon's, Zerubbabel's. Zerubbabel's has been gone for 1,936 years. Jesus can't come back to it in any sense, way, shape, or form. It's long, long, long gone. At His first coming, He went into that house. And then He leveled it because they refused Him. And he made the great difference during his ministry from his father's house to their house. Oh, brethren, Jewish fables tear these prophecies and turn them upside down and confuse men so that they're all looking out to the future instead of being so excited. I could dwell on that passage right there, 6 through 9 of Haggai 2, for a long, long time. Because the desire of all nations was going to come. And though that foundation looked so small and insignificant, and though the Jews didn't have much in the way of silver and gold, they were going to have the King of Glory in that temple. And they had Him there. From birth, when He was dedicated, 
until 33 years old when he left it for the final time. What a wonderful passage. What a comfort to Zerubbabel, to Joshua, and to the people to be strong and to go ahead and build that little house without much silver or gold. Because the Lord said, I don't care about the silver and gold. I own it all anyway. I'll send you something that will decorate this house. I'll send the Lord of glory. And the glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former. Because in this place will I give peace. And Jesus Christ became the Prince of Peace by making peace with God 1,976 years ago in 30 A.D. when he died on the cross of Calvary. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We praise you and we bless you. Not only for sending the desire of all nations, but for making peace in that place. For making reconciliation for iniquity within your 70 weeks prophesied to Daniel. We're thankful that we have Abraham's bosom to look forward to. Heavenly Father, open our eyes of faith that we might behold all these things plainly, that we might see them clearly, and that we would set our affection on those things that are above rather than things on this earth. We thank Thee for the truth of the Gospel. We thank Thee for the message that has been preached for 2,000 years. We thank You for saving us from the Jewish fables that would corrupt and turn us from the truth of these simple prophecies. Lord, have mercy upon us now. Bless us as we partake of some food together. Let our fellowship be sweet and our praise great of Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.